Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 61 for the third quarter of January 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is giant asteroid impacts and their effects on various solar system objects. The basic claim in this episode is that astronomers invoke giant asteroid or comet impacts to explain a lot of weird solar system things. When I discussed this as a possibility to explain Venus's weird spin in my anniversary episode on Velikovsky, a comment I got on my blog was to the effect that the person enjoys reading mainstream scientist excuses for things that seem even more silly to them than the pseudoscientists. So, I thought I would take an episode to talk about whether our invoking of an asteroid impact to explain things was our way of just special pleading and lack of any evidence, or something that's been supposedly disproven. I'm going to talk about four main cases in this episode, some of which I've talked about before, but this time in the exclusive context of the asteroid impact ideas. Returning to the format that I initially set out for this podcast program, I'm going to take you first through background information on the solar system's history and dynamics. The nebula or nebular hypothesis is currently our best model for how the solar system forms. It's often ridiculed by creationists and other pseudoscientists, but that's a different episode. As an aside, does anyone watch or did anyone watch Alton Brown's Good Eats TV show? I keep on feeling like I'm sounding like him because he'd always bring up something and then say, that's a topic for a future episode. Anyway, the very basic explanation of the nebular hypothesis is that a very expansive cloud of dust and gas was perturbed by almost anything, and a tiny area now had enough density to start to collapse under its own gravity. This kept going, and a star was born with a family of planets that originated from smaller, other clumps throughout the local region. The planets were built up by smaller chunks, which were built up by smaller chunks, and so on back to the original dust and gas grains themselves. After the star is born, it's very energetic, throwing off lots of ultraviolet radiation, and it effectively destroys the nebula in the local region so that no more planet formation can happen nearby. You're left with a star, planets, and innumerable smaller chunks of material that didn't get swept up and impact and become part of other planets in time. If they're rocky or metally, they're asteroids. If they're icy, they're comets. Most objects have generally roughly nicely circular orbits around the star. Some don't. Others will get perturbed by a large planet's gravity and get set on a new orbit. It takes a while to do what we call clear out the solar system of debris, but you really only have four choices. One, impact the star. Two, impact a planet. Three, get shot into a stable orbit. Or four, be ejected from the system entirely. That's a crash course through solar system formation that usually takes either one 80-minute class or two 50-minute class periods to get through. And I know this because I've taught it. It's all based on fairly basic physics that was figured out centuries ago. Indeed, the nebular hypothesis was first formulated a few hundred years ago. As with all models, it's been modified over the years in its specifics, and extra bits of physics have been added onto it, especially when we started to find exoplanets and also as we use the Hubble Space Telescope and other telescopes to observe star-forming regions and very young stellar systems. But the very basic idea is the same. Early on, 
you're left with a lot of junk floating around, and a lot of that junk is big. Another piece of background information is the cratering history of the solar system itself. From the nebular hypothesis, one can formulate another hypothesis about what the cratering rate should have been throughout the history of the solar system. If you start with a lot of stuff left over from planet formation, you're probably going to have a lot of it impacting planets early on. As more stuff is either impacting the sun, impacting a planet, ejected or destroyed or falls into a stable orbit, the cratering rate itself is going to get less and less and less until it reaches something that's fairly steady, only based on stuff that occasionally gets knocked out of the relatively stable asteroid belt or the stray comet. With that hypothesis, what do we see? For those who've been with the podcast for at least seven months and remember episode 40, you already know the answer. The short, short version is that we can count how many craters of a certain size there are on a given surface, like, say, a lava floodplain on the moon, better known as a mare. If we then have a rock from that surface, such as, for example, the Apollo astronauts or lunar robotic craft returning those rocks, we can use radiometric techniques on Earth to date the rock and then be able to say that that surface with that many craters is as old as that rock is. And regardless of where that surface is on the moon with that many craters, it should have that same age. That's the very basics behind using craters to model ages. You can then use various scaling laws to get from the moon to other planets. If you want the longer version of that, go back to episode 40. Once everything is said and done, the results from Apollo really show exactly what we expected, or pretty close to what we expected. The impact rate was thousands, if not tens to hundreds of thousands times, about four billion years ago, compared with what it is now. The point in going through these two bits of background are to demonstrate that we have two consistent stories based on a lot of observational data. They point a picture of a very violent early solar system where big things smash into other big things fairly frequently. We also have some giant craters. We have Utopia Planitia, which is a crater about three to 4,000 kilometers across on Mars. There's also the South Pole Aiken Basin on the Moon, which is about 3,000 kilometers across, but the Moon is about half the size of Mars. So we know that big stuff smashed into other stuff early on. With that context, we're going to now look at four specific examples of invoking asteroid impacts to explain weird things and then decide if it's special pleading. The first is the tilt of the planet Uranus. Earth's orbit around the Sun is defined as the plane of the solar system. It's just defined that way by definition. All the planets, the asteroids, and most comets are near the plane of the solar system. Almost all of the planet's rotations are about an axis that's somewhat perpendicular to the plane of the solar system, such that all of the planet's equators are on that plane, or sort of close to it. The fundamentals of the nebular hypothesis for planetary formation suggest that this should be the case based on conservation of angular momentum, Everything should be in the same plane, and it should spin the same way. Remember that, because it's important for our third item, too. One of the big exceptions is the ice giant planet Uranus, or icy giant planet, or 
if you're old school like me, the gas giant planet Uranus. It's the seventh planet from the sun, and it's a featureless blue blob as imaged by Voyager 2 and if anyone's seen it through a backyard telescope. Or almost any telescope from Earth. Uranus does orbit in the plane of the solar system. That's not an issue. What's weird is that it's tilted such that its equator, not its spin axis, is roughly perpendicular to its orbital path. In other words, it spins on its side. The consensus model to explain this is that Uranus was struck by something roughly Earth-sized, maybe a little larger, early on in the solar system's formation, and that whacked it over like if you were to smack someone upside the head. It's going to cause their head to tilt. Not that you should demo this at work, home, school, or on anyone else. But watch a movie and you'll see what I mean. A possible alternative that some have suggested is that a dance between Jupiter and Saturn, called the Nice model, about 4 billion years ago could have transferred some energy to Uranus and caused it to tip over. I think that's a fairly minority opinion at this point, and as I said, almost all the literature that you'll read on this says that it probably got whacked. Is this special pleading? I'd say not. We have a weird anomaly, we know from observations that have confirmed the hypotheses that big stuff was flying through the solar system early on, and, if that happened, it can fairly easily explain Uranus's tilt. The second solar system anomaly is Earth's moon. For more on that, please refer back to episode 53. The bottom line point from that episode was that there are several different models to build Earth's weird moon. All of them have problems, some of them fairly fatal. The best model that fits the most data that we have about the moon supports the idea that the Big Splash model happened, which is that only some tens of millions of years after Earth formed, a Mars-sized object smashed into Earth at an angle, and the moon was formed from the orbiting debris. Is this special pleading? Again, I'd say no. We know that this stuff was going on, and while it's not perhaps the most likely or the simplest explanation, it's the one that best fits the data, which I discussed in episode 53 in much more detail. Third, is going back to the problem with Uranus, we see this again with Venus. Venus does spin with its axis roughly perpendicular to the plane of its orbit. The problem is that Venus is rotating in the wrong direction. This can't happen under the physics that explains the nebular collapse. You have to have all of these things spinning in the same direction. We don't know how to form Venus spinning the opposite way as opposed to everything else. Since we can't form it that way, either something is very wrong with the hypothesis that explains other observations, or Venus was modified after it formed, and after that hypothesis stops in time. As with Uranus, the best way and the most likely way, given the possibilities that we know of to modify it, is a giant impact. Something probably whacked Venus real good and tipped it completely over. As with Uranus, there are some models that can explain it dynamically with tidal forces from the Sun acting over time to flip it over. Is this special pleading? Again, I'd say probably not, for the reasons I said before. It's more likely that it was modified to get to its current condition as opposed to forming that way because, well, we don't know how it could have formed that way but we do know how it could be modified to be the way it is now. The more likely of the two possible ways it was modified that we know of are it being struck by a large object. 
To get back to the feedback that I'd gotten, what about Velikovsky's idea that Venus was spat from Jupiter and settled into its current orbit and spin after traipsing through the solar system for a few thousand years? The problem with that is pretty much everything about it, as I explained in episode 46 on Velikovsky. Nothing that we know about from physics, chemistry, nor even history support Velikovsky's Venus claims. But what we do know about solar system formation can support Venus getting struck by a large object a few billion years ago. For the fourth and final mystery, we go to the planet Mercury, closest to the star that most people like to call the Sun. It's been known since at least 1974, with the first flyby mission of Mariner 10, that Mercury has an abnormally large and heavy core, very likely to be iron. Since we think that most stuff in the inner solar system formed out of the same stuff that the majority of asteroids are, known as chondritic or rocky asteroids, Mercury's composition should have been similar. Earth's core is also abnormally large at around half the diameter of the planet but that can be explained by the moon forming giant impact. On Mercury, the Mariner 10 results showed that the core was not about half of the planet's radius, but at least 75% of the radius, or about 40% of the volume versus Earth's core being only 17% of Earth's volume. The latest results from the Messenger mission in orbit about Mercury now suggest that the core is actually 85% the radius, or about 60% the volume. The nebular hypothesis, on its own, can't easily form Mercury like that. So, either the nebular hypothesis has to be thrown out, modifications have to be made to account for this, or Mercury was altered in some way after it formed. As such, there are three possibilities that have been proposed to explain it. The first is, yet again, Mercury got whacked. The whacking model, as I put it, has Mercury starting at about two times its current mass, and something like one-sixth its mass, several hundred kilometers across, smacked it head-on. This would have stripped away a lot of the original crust and mantle, leaving it with an abnormally large core relative to what was left as a planet. The second model is that Mercury formed when the Sun was throwing birthing temper tantrums, and its temperature was abnormally high, so that it might have been as high as 10,000 kelvins at Mercury, that's, you know, very roughly speaking, about 10,000 degrees centigrade. This would have vaporized a lot of the surface rock, and the subsequent rock vapor atmosphere would have then been stripped away by the fierce young sun's solar wind. A third model suggests that the solar nebula, before the sun had really been birthed and everything was still forming, caused more drag than we previously thought early on closer to the sun. Just like if you have a strong undertow in the ocean, lighter stuff, like rock, will get carried away, while the heavier stuff, like a lead ball, will stay put and continue to gather more material that's heavier, like itself. As the nebula thinned out, as stuff was gathered up by the growing protostar, Mercury could then start to gather lighter stuff because of less drag, but overall it wouldn't have been able to collect as much lighter stuff as, say, Venus, Earth, Mars, or the asteroids. All of these models are hypotheses of what may have happened to Mercury based on a post-formation idea that works with the other models, early solar system idea that does not work with other models, and a third idea that's a small modification to the nebular model that doesn't really change anything else 
and is within parts of the model that have larger uncertainties. From these, you can make predictions about what each would do to the surface, as in predictions about different things that we should see on the present-day surface of Mercury if each one were correct. The first two both predict that Mercury's surface should not have elements that are easily vaporized, stuff that's lightweight in other words. The third is different in that it has no ban on easily vaporized elements because those could have glommed on after drag was less of an issue. The Messenger spacecraft in orbit today can sense surface composition. What it found was higher than expected amounts of potassium and sulfur, both of which are easily vaporized. Before that result, I would have argued that the impact idea was probably the most likely. But with these new data, they indicate that whatever caused Mercury to have such a large core, or form without a large crust and mantle, couldn't have removed those elements. Unless you find a way to get them back after they were removed, which is adding an extra layer of complexity. That might be special pleading. And we don't need that extra layer. As I said at the beginning, the nebular model is very good at the basics of explaining how solar systems form, and it's backed up by a lot of observations. But the details of it do continue to get modified. Adding extra physical processes like gas drag has only been able to be done recently due to better computers and lab experiments. These added layers of complexity don't show that we were wrong before, but that we didn't have the whole story. It's how science works. We add extra layers as we learn more about the physics involved, and we have more constraints. That's what Mercury does. It adds another constraint, and based on these latest data, it shows that a process that was previously thought to probably have a minor role may not have been so minor, at least around Mercury. So, is invoking a giant impact to explain Mercury an example of special pleading? No because the new data show it's unlikely to be the model that best explains all the observables, since special pleading means that you continue to make excuses for something after it's been shown to be wrong. This is not a case of special pleading, because most now accept it as probably not the explanation. So there you have it. Four examples of weird solar system anomalies that people explain or have explained with big impact events. I would say that none of them are examples of special pleading. They're examples of invoking a process that we know went on to explain a feature that we know it can explain. And in the case of Mercury, it's a process that's no longer in favor based on the new data. There's no new news for this episode, but there is a Q&A question. This episode's question comes from Alan N. from Arizona, but currently in Thailand, who asks, There's a new Mars meteorite in the news recently, the Black Beauty. My question is, how do we know these rocks come from Mars? Why not Venus or the asteroid belt? And, since I assume the scientists know what they're talking about, what kind of activity ejected these rocks? I don't know what the escape velocity of Mars is, but it must require substantial energy. I like this question because it's both timely and another example for this episode of how the scientific process works. For those who don't know, in early January this year, a recently found meteorite was announced to have been determined that it came from Mars, 
and it was unlike any of the other Martian meteorites that we have. It was both a different composition and different age from anything else in our meteorite collection of roughly about 100 Martian meteorites. So how do we know that they came from Mars? It's not like they have a Made on Mars sticker attached. What we do is that we can sample the gases that are trapped inside of the meteorite and figure out what proportion of what is in the tiny bubbles inside of the rock. Once we had landers on Mars, we could directly sample its atmosphere. When the atmosphere was found to be very similar to that gas in some meteorites, the conclusion was that that was their likely origin. There are some additional indicators, all dealing with chemistry, but the gas is one of the main ones. What's neat about this meteorite in particular is that the gases don't really match Mars' atmosphere, at least not today. So why do we think it came from Mars? Part of it is that the chemistry does match the rock chemistry found by recent Mars rovers. In fact, it matches the rock chemistry better than a lot of other meteorites that we're pretty sure came from Mars. Another part is the process of elimination. The meteorite has abnormally high amounts of extraterrestrial water in it, as in water that they're almost entirely 100%, as close to 100% certain that they can be, that it did not come from Earth. It was indigenous to the rock itself. The meteorite has about 10 times what other Martian meteorites have, but, again, it's pretty sure that this contamination did not come from Earth. So the question then is, where could it have come from? Its trapped gases are sort of like Mars, the chemistry is like a lot of the rocks that we see on Mars, and it has 6,000 parts per million of water in it, more than the other Mars meteorites that we have. It's through process of elimination that we get that it probably came from Mars. It's almost certainly not from Earth because of the actual low water content relative to other terrestrial Earth rocks and other chemical indicators. We can't see how it could be from Mercury because there shouldn't be any water in its rocks at all. It's 2.1 billion years old, but it was only in space for a few million years before it landed on Earth. Models for Venus show that its runaway greenhouse effect would have gotten rid of all that water long before that. Comets, on the other hand, would have, again, way too much water just like Earth. Asteroids shouldn't have any water like Mercury. With Mars, it probably had that much water at some point in the past. We just don't have examples of rocks that show that amount of water in our collection. But, from the process of elimination, what's left as most likely is Mars. It doesn't really fit with our other samples, but it does fit with a few observations of Mars, and so the conclusion for now is that the meteorite is from Mars. To answer the final question of how it got here, we return to what this entire episode has been about. Impacts. Mars has roughly 385,000 craters, one kilometer and larger, and there are millions or tens of millions that are smaller. An impact event carries a huge amount of energy, and that impact event can launch objects off the planet. That's how we have Martian meteorites and lunar meteorites. We also have meteorites from the asteroid Vesta. We may even have some meteorites from Venus or Mercury, we just don't know yet, because we don't have anything like atmospheric samples to link them to Venus, and we may never know from Mercury. So with that said, that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. 
The easiest is probably, though, to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. I'm bypassing feedback again this week, and there is no new puzzler. However, because I'm recording this early, because I have to be out of town when this goes live, the puzzler from last episode is still going. So, submit your best pareidolia examples from any spacecraft imagery of planets, and I'll show the best, and the show notes for the next episode. The episode to come out next, January 24th, will probably be something of a clip show. More on that when it comes out. In terms of announcements, there's only one for this episode, and that's that I am tentatively scheduled for a debate with Michael Horn, the North American media representative of the alleged UFO contactee Billy Meyer. Horn and I have had, I'll just say, conversations in the past, uh, but this particular debate will be on a pretty skeptical radio show, and I will have more details when we actually have that scheduled. It'll probably be sometime in April or May, somewhere in that time frame. So with that said... wraps up this topic for the 61st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use A, the feedback form on the website, to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, C, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. I forget what letter, so we'll just say five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or F, send me a tweet, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, though it takes me some time to get to them sometimes. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your other portal podcasting of choice, or podcasting portal of choice. If you like the podcast, then please recommend it to all whom you encounter.